if you try to force doors open of success and you know, fame and fortune and levels, it's bloody hard to open those doors. If you're a good leader and you act with humility and integrity, the doors will open anyway. They just become a byproduct of you being a good human with good interactions with other good humans. And so kind of focusing on that is far more important. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Shamsa Lee, an Air Force logistician and veteran of operational service in Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea and the Middle East region. She's currently a Senior Manager in Climate and Sustainability at Deloitte, on leave without pay from the Australian Air Force. Her services logistics officer provided many lessons at an early age. She trained as a UN Gender Advisor and is a passionate social justice advocate for a systems approach to intersectionality in the workforce and community. As you will hear, she lives her personal mission statement, be a good human, leading meaningful change for a better world, every day in her role with Deloitte and also as co-founder of Propel Her Australia. What I loved about our conversation was the absolute passion and vigour with which Shamsa approaches leadership, her mission, family, faith and social purpose. Let's jump right in. Shamsa Lee, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Martin. Well, look, the question I always ask my guests is, how do you end up joining the service, or in your case, the Royal Australian Air Force? Well, Martin, every good story begins with a boy, and this one's no different. (laughs) My boyfriend at the time, when I was in high school, he joined the Air Force as an airfield defence guard to begin with and has moved on to become a RAF chaplain. But I had then started at university studying media and journalism. And he said, do you know if you change to business, the Air Force will pay for your degree? And I thought, oh, it's a pretty good deal to me. Yeah. So I dropped out of journalism and media and I switched to business, joined the Air Force as a logistics officer undergraduate, had no idea what that really was. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. Yeah, wow. That's not the usual path, but sounds like a fascinating one. Who were the leadership heroes, influences on you growing up or early in your military service? Oh, you know, being a junior officer in the military, you're kind of spoilt for choice when it comes to leadership influences. And it's, you know, a distinct difference between starting your career in the corporate world is that you're actually surrounded by incredible leaders who have to, you know, perform under pressure and you get to see that intimate response to that pressure. So I have, you know, so many leaders influenced the first few years of my junior officer journey, especially because I was on so many operations as a junior officer. Mm. Um, But, you know, you always remember your first commanding officer. And that for me is the now Air Commodore Marty Smith. And the reason why I loved him is because he would remember everyone's names. You know, as a commanding officer, he could walk into any part of the squadron and he would know that person and what their goals were. And I just loved the way he connected with humans. And that translated to the mission because you know we would we would follow him anywhere and every time I meet a leader I try to notice what I like about them and what I don't mm. and then you know, how can I apply that to my own leadership journey so yeah mm. shout out to Marty Smith yeah I happen to know him personally as well and you're absolutely right such a genuine connective social person 
And such an important skill, isn't it, as a leader to be able to connect with people and to know their name rather than sort of, you know, just sort of pursue sort of whatever the organisation's doing, assuming that people will just go along with the ride. I think as well, you know, with artificial intelligence, having really interesting conversations about, you know, you can automate everything. You can never automate human connection and leadership. Mm. And those skills are becoming more and more important. And I think businesses and certainly my clients are starting to pick up on that now. So, you know, definitely the technical skills are important, but I can teach anyone technical skills. I can't teach someone how to care for a team that comes innately. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. You said you had operational service. That took you to a couple of different places. I'd love to hear about those and got your attention on those particular missions. Ah, I can tell this story in birthdays. So my 21st birthday, I was on Manus Island as a senior logistician. So, you know, turning 21 in the middle of a jungle. I did get a birthday cake flown in on a C-130 by my team from Australia, which was very nice, a Woolies mud cake, which is the best cake ever. Mm -hmm. And so to be 21 and have that formative experience where you're leading people who have been in the Army and Air Force, you know, longer than you've been alive in some cases, how do you motivate them for a very tricky um, you know, politically sensitive and, and physically challenging mission. My 22nd birthday, I was in Afghanistan in Tarankout in Uruzgan province and we're closing down the base and preparing to hand over to the Afghan National Army. And again, being 22 and having 35 Afghan male contractors working for you and you're both trying to, you know, achieve this outcome of shutting down a base with bosses, you know, in Kabul and Kandahar, but you guys are just in the middle of the, you know, the backwaters of the desert somewhere. How do you kind of work together as a team, as a multinational team? That was completely formative for me as well. Mm. And my, my 24th birthday, I was back in the Middle East and managing the contract for the KC-30 air-to-air refueler. Mm. That was a really important mission, Operation Okra, because it was the first time in Air Force's history that every platform that we had deployed, every aircraft that we had deployed, were had contractor managed things so we didn't own any of the spares we were trying to get in and out of the theater and so you know all the logisticians listening to that can imagine the complexities that we had and we matured so much as an organization and so to be in the thick of that as we're rolling out you know we're providing air to air refueling services to foreign militaries and we hadn't even rolled our aircraft out to full capacity yet Mm. so that was really exciting to see what the amazing humans and the defense force can do under such time frames and pressures From those operational experiences, it sounded like there was a lot of opportunity to work with different cultures and different organisations. What were the leadership lessons you learned from that, in particularly in places like Afghanistan and, and Papua New Guinea? Yeah, I think, you know, situational leadership is so important and it highlighted to me that the days of the stereotype of military leadership being a lot of yelling and men with moustaches is gone. Hmm. People, you know, it's not your granddad's Air Force anymore. This is a team of highly intelligent, highly technologically enabled humans. The missions have changed, how we fight has changed, how our adversaries fight has changed, and how our coalition partners fight has changed. So you'd have to take a completely different leadership paradigm into an area of operations than you would have taken 50, 60, 70 years ago. And certainly, you know, as a woman in that space, as a young woman in that space, been in um, cultural areas where perhaps culturally I would not have the balance of power that I needed to execute the mission, you had to find different ways. And for me, it's all about camaraderie and rapport. So, you know, the example of the Afghan men 
you know, I really connect quickly connected with religion, you know, being, being a Christian and then being Muslim, it was really easy to make, you know, jokes like Moses and Abraham, you know, it's all the same. And, and, and just those like things that we would laugh about to the point where they were inviting me over for Eid, you know, iftar uh, at the end of Ramadan and, you know, their wives were sending me in food and jewelry. And we got this beautiful friendship, which was about, yeah, Hey, this mission is kind of crappy. It's really bloody hot. And it's almost impossible, but we're doing it together and we're going to get through it. And that's certainly the kind of lesson that I've taken into my consulting career now, which is about, hey, this is a really tight deadline. There's a lot of, you know, stuff that doesn't make sense and it's not fair, but how can we work together as a team and get out of here together? So that's certainly the approach to leadership that I took in those situations. And I understand that sort of from spending that time, particularly in a place like Afghanistan, that you got a particular interest around that sort of gender advisor role that's so important in our modern military operations. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so gender, peace and security was something that I was, you know, literally living (laughs) as as a woman in a war zone. But I say to people that you can't go through the experiences that I had without having a social justice lens, without seeing the people behind the war, the people behind the mission. And that's something that really stuck with me has become part of my identity and coming back to Australia, you know, that it was around the time of the Broderick Review and, and all those kind of, you know, conversations were, were happening in the military saying, hey, we go around, you know, to the other side of the world and we, we care for women and children on that side of the world, but what are we doing about our own women and our own vulnerable people in the military? And so that started a lot of conversations and, you know, thought leadership inside Air Force that I participated in around participation and retention of women and you know we need to be looking after our own as well and that led to a whole you know whole sort of side hustle in the military I guess of um, <laughs> been a voice for women and female coaching. Mm. The funny way to put it side hustle but it's actually one of those things that's so important isn't it and you know I've had other guests on the show like Jenny Whitworth who has sort of led that work I know you know her well. So what does that really, what, you know, for the person that has no experience of that, what is the role of a gender peace and security advisor in that operation environment? Yeah, so I never deployed as a specific gender advisor. Um, I did work very closely with the our female police and our female engagement team and our gender advisor in Afghanistan. Hmm. But essentially the role of a gender advisor is to provide advice to command on mission considerations that would impact the most vulnerable. Mm. So you see definitely, you know, if we're going, for example, a flood-affected area, we might think that we need to put engineering equipment on the very first plane to get in there to start, you know, remediating runways and things like that. But perhaps there's actually a high proportion of women and children in a flood-affected area and they're going to need sanitary kits. And perhaps what we need to be putting on that first pallet is whole bunch of sanitary kits because that's going to build rapport but it's also going to provide safety to those women that might be in a very vulnerable situation so it's about applying a gender lens to operational considerations Mm. and certainly that australia the australian defense force has some of the best training and my co-founder propel her australia she is the senior gender peace and security instructor at peace operations training center Mm. and i've seen her in action and we've got some of the best training in the world at the moment in this space Mm. So you mentioned Propel Her Australia. Tell me more about that. I, I'm sure people would be curious about why that was needed and and what you saw as the gap and, and what that organisation is now doing. Yeah, so this is, I guess, the culmination of the side hustle of years of side hustling in this space. So I met uh, Major Lindsay Freeman, the woman I just mentioned before, who's an absolute badass and has just returned from UN Peacekeeping Mission, actually. And so we 
both got together and we thought, hey, we've got some stuff to say about leadership and women in the leadership, women in leadership in the military specifically. And we couldn't find anything online to help us grow in that space. So there wasn't any resources available for women in the military in an Australian context. There were bits and pieces that were matching one of the two, you know, women in the military or maybe leadership in Australian context. It was a very male-dominated area. So we published a series just of eight articles. So I'm a, a trained Air Force leadership coach. So I just put a few things out about goal setting in a military context, networking, branding. Lindsay had her own areas as well. And we just hosted it on Ground of Curiosity, which is a blog that many of your listeners would be familiar with. But many people might not know that it's actually run by a badass female lieutenant colonel, Claire O'Neill. And so she hosted Propel Her on Ground of Curiosity And we didn't really think much about it, but we started getting these emails from women saying, hey, I've got a thing to say about my experiences and a thing that I know that could help other women develop, but I don't have a space to share it. Do you think I could publish on Propel Her? And what we realized is we'd accidentally created this psychologically safe space for women to contribute to professional military education. Mm. And it kind of just blew up. So now we have multinational authors and contributors, readers, and we have about a 50-50 split of men and women as well. There's a lot of men that are really interested in reading leadership from a female perspective. And Major General Mick Ryan has been an incredible supporter Mm. of that page. So now we've brought on two new editors and we're actually being able to give these women editing skills and it's kind of just become bigger than us, which was everything it was meant to be. It was never meant to be just about us, but we've got this beautiful community of women who are now feeling you know, empowered to speak up about their own career development journeys in the Australian Defence Force. Yeah. doesn't matter who you are. It's so important, isn't it, to be able to find your voice. But, you know, often it is the case that men might fight through it, but uh, for women, though, sometimes it's not always as that easy, isn't it? And it's so good that you've got that platform to be able to do that. We will surely put some comments in the show notes to make sure people can find that. We know it doesn't go well all the time. What was your biggest lesson from perhaps when it went wrong or didn't go so well during your time in full-time service? Hmm, that's a good question. There were certainly lots of moments where, you know, we're very close to either, you know, international incidents or, you know, relationship breakdowns or anywhere along the spectrum. Hmm. And I think in that moment, that's where the power of the military really comes to the fore because it's not just you. It's not you by yourself on that front line. You look to your left and right and you've got a whole bunch of people who are there with you. Mm. And I think mistakes are made when people's ego get in the way and they think that they need to solve it all. And as a leader, you have a responsibility to create a safe space where people can put their hand up and say, hey, I'm not feeling confident enough to do this thing by myself because when they don't feel that safety and they do it themselves that's when accidents happen yeah and certainly there was a number of incidents like that overseas where I I sort of realized that hey as a 22 year old female in you know the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan I don't actually have to win this war myself Mm. and I can put my hand up and ask and that's been a very having that intellectual humility very early on in your career and that leadership humility will definitely set you up well for the future yeah, such an important point, isn't it, to recognise that, you know, you're one cog in the system and that, that you don't have to solve every problem. I think that's so important. It's a, it's a great leadership lesson. So good you got to learn it at a young age rather than sort of somewhere later having made that mistake a couple of times. I think as well on the flip side, as a leader, what you do need to, you know, be aware of is what you are responsible for, hmm. what decisions you do have to make. Yes. And 
certainly, you know, as an officer, as you progress up your career, and I mean, of course, you would have so many more ex- actual, you know, examples of this, but when where the buck stops with you and kind of owning that as well yeah. is really important. Yeah, yeah. Some really good thoughts there. You're actually in a sort of, you've transitioned from full-time service, but actually on leave without pay. Can you tell us about that sort of decision to transition I know you're married, you've got children as well. So it'd be great to get that picture of what that's been like as being a mother in full-time service, but also making decisions to transition. Yeah, I think, you know, the most important thing for me is that I'm not running away from anything. Mm. I'm running towards something. Mm. And, you know, I love the military. I bleed blue. And Air Commodore Smith, actually, the best thing he ever told me was that you never leave the military, you just show up to work less. You know, you can never really leave that community and that family. But I have been in the military since I was 17. I've loved my career. You know, I was able to promote really early and do a whole bunch of incredible things. But I always had that feeling of what would my potential look like? What impact could I have on the world outside of the military? And I think a lot of people have that. And I spoke to a lot of different mentors and they said, you know, if you don't do it now, it'll get much harder to do. So I definitely think that 03, 04 level is a really good time to look at this. Mm. Secondly, CDF, the current Chief of Defence Force, has been quite vocal about this, that you know, the skills that we need for the military of the future have to be permeable. They have to be skills that are influenced by what's actually happening in the world around us. And therefore, he's a very strong advocate for that industry experience. My final role in the military was as a workforce capability advisor for the logistics workforce. And the logistics workforce has changed dramatically in the sense that we now, you know, we contract out more assets than we own. So we need a deep understanding of how defence industry works. And so I created a lot of opportunities in that role for people to be able to move in and out of the military. Mm. Air Commodore Tony Hindmarsh is another uh, really strong supporter of this. So I put my case to Air Force and said, all right, put your money where your mouth is. I'd like a year off to kind of just see what I can do on the outside. Mm. And so I've done that and, you know, incredible opportunities have presented themselves to me. And I think that I'm going to stay out a bit longer now. Mm. But the really cool thing is that you don't have to cut and run. And especially with, you know, I know if there's, you know, veterans listening or, you know, current serving people listening who are thinking about stepping out, I know how mentally hard it is to walk away. Mm. And I think that you don't have to feel like, you're leaving your family, you're just moving out of home for a while, mm. you know, and the veteran community has all been there before and will absolutely wrap their arms around you and support you. Mm. Mm. And in some ways it's sort of an extension, isn't it? And, you know, it's almost that the Defence Forces actually recognise that there's we need to do this and actually you're creating a safe place for you to have a career that sort of then has another direction that includes time perhaps in a you know, leave without pay, doing a role like you're doing and then come back to full-time service and and seeing that as one career continuum rather than broken service. Absolutely. And certainly the force structure has to become more agile for that. And Mm. especially, you know, that will then allow us to inject talent at the levels we need it. At the moment, we have to grow from the bottom up and it'll take 15, 20, Mm. 30 years to grow someone, you know, of your caliber in the Navy. What if we could bring executives and inject them right where we need them? Mm. What if we start their reserve career 10 years before and then we bring them in when they're needed full time on a contract? You know, looking at these more agile ways of growing our force, especially in the current recruiting climate, is the only way we're going to remain viable. Mm. So sounds like the transition to a corporate career has actually been sort of something you've embraced and you just said you ran towards 
and, you know, ran towards the option of being able to go on long-term sort of leave without pay to, to be able to do this. And you're now in a role as a consultant. Tell us about that and what's floating your boat. Yeah. I mean, it's such a stereotype to move from defence into consulting, isn't it? But there's a lot of reasons why veterans are bloody good consultants because we're agile thinkers. We don't need a structured problem we can solve without having all the information. We're able to you know, to surge, we're able to lead teams through complication. And so I've transitioned into consulting, but I've moved into social justice consulting. I'm not doing any defence consulting. I can't because I'm on leave without pay, which has created a really nice probity clause. And certainly I'd recommend, you know, that when people who are transitioning look to consulting, you don't go straight to defence consulting. There's so many other things you can do. We do need bloody good veterans in defence consulting, absolutely, but there's so many other things you can do. So I've moved straight into Deloitte, into workforce transformation and now climate sustainability, working mostly with the Indigenous Services Group and having my eyes just absolutely open to, you know, the way that the colonial patriarchal system oppresses people who aren't white men in this country. And that's been certainly completely eye-opening for me and something that the Defence Force has, you know, caught on to and for a long time has had a very robust Indigenous liaison officer program and also our Reconciliation Action Plan. But it's been fantastic, you know, meeting incredible humans, working in diverse teams that we just don't have that kind of diversity in our military ranks, having to operate with all different kind of personality types, getting used to people being 10 minutes late to every single meeting, you know, all the little things that you don't realise are ingrained into you. You know, it's been really fun to dress up and have a corporate uniform and, you know, be able to set my own performance and career goals outside of a traditional structure. There's been some incredible things, but the biggest thing has been, you know, my life is all about impact. Everything I do has to have an impact that's bigger than me. And I found that I was able to do that every single day in the military, but I'm finding that I can also do that on the outside too. And finally, the difference, or one of the things I was concerned about is that I love leading good people. That's the best part about being an officer in the military, just the best humans ever. And you get to lead them and bring out their collective strength. But what I realized is that you know, people outside of the military also deserve good leadership and you can absolutely lead, you know, in your beautiful military style on the outside. And I've been able to mentor women on the outside, all the things I didn't think I was going to be able to do, I've absolutely found that place. Mm. And what I'll say about consulting is that people say, oh, consulting, it's like gross and capitalist and, you know, why would you want to do that? But what I've realised is that if you think about consulting as you know, you're the spotlight. So you're not in the spotlight, you're the lighting crew. Mm. And consulting is about being invited into the heart of an organisation to help keep it beating. You know, it's injured and it needs help and you've come in to provide that help. And once you think about consulting like that and you take the ego out of it, it's absolutely purpose-driven and it absolutely ticks all the boxes of something that I was looking for when I moved out of the Air Force. Mm. So it sounds like you've maintained integrity with your true values and you used the term there which was a military style of leadership i wonder if you could characterize that because i i think it's good to sort of put it in a nutshell to what that style of leadership looks like from your perspective yeah i mean and you know, earlier on i said that you know it's not your granddad's air force anymore and that leadership has changed and what i would say it is is servant leadership. So, you know, for me in the military, the team needs to achieve something. You know, leadership is about taking your own ego out of it and providing care for those people to be able to achieve that thing, whatever it is. But you can apply that to everything. And what I've found is that 
you know, if you try to force doors open of success and you know, fame and fortune and levels, it's bloody hard to open those doors. If you're a good leader and you act with humility and integrity, the doors will open anyway. They just become a byproduct mm. of you being a good human with good interactions with other good humans. And so kind of focusing on that is far more important and it's working out well for me so far, so I don't intend to change that. Yeah, very good. Is there anything the military didn't teach you in terms of, you know, now that you've leaning forward into this sort of consulting role in the corporate world that you've learned since you've been there? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, there's some technical skills gaps when you leave and, of course, you know, the commercial acumen piece looks different when you're in a, um, a for-profit kind of business. Hmm. But perhaps the military didn't teach me who I was without the rank. Mm. So I thought my self-identity was very strong. You know, I thought I was a young O4 that's a bit of a crazy left feminist but is mostly, you know, on the tracks and is good at getting stuff done. And I thought that I had a very strong sense of self. But when that is taken away from you and you walk into a room and no one can look at your chest to see where you've been and what you've done, that's very, you feel naked and you kind of have to go back to the core of who you are and say, who am I just as Shamsa? Yeah. Who am I just as a woman? And then kind of rebuild that. But you don't start from scratch again. You start with the foundation that the military's given you. And there's something really beautiful in that. And it's almost like you get to have this, you know, re-emerging of who you are. Mm. And I think that can be very, very scary for a lot of people. And so you have to really reframe that when you step out and go, all right, this is going to be a little bit painful. Mm. I might realise some things about myself, but that's exactly why I'm doing this. I'm here for the journey to be the best version that I can of myself. Yeah. Mm. And what I'm hearing is an attitude about that and a mindset about it rather than sort of seeing it as a challenge. It's actually an opportunity to recognise who I am being integrity with who I am without the rank or the, the metal ribbons, et cetera. Mm. Very good. What would be your best advice to that new leader, emerging leader who's looking to lean into leadership more today? You know, that person that's sort of finding themselves having to take responsibility for others but hasn't yet had that opportunity and is looking for those sort of, you know, top three of Shams's tips on being a good leader. I think. Having humility and curiosity is essential at all levels, mm. but recognising that, hey, you might not always be right and that thing that the textbook in your Bachelor of Business taught you about leadership might not work in the real world necessarily and being open to that. I think remembering that the world is bigger than yourself is really, really important. One, because it takes the pressure off yourself to have to do all the things like we spoke about before. But two, it opens up your eyes up to new lenses and new ways of seeing the world and perhaps new pathways for your career. You don't know what your career is going to look like and that's really exciting. Even in the military where, you know, it looks like it's very, you know, laid out for you the next 20 years, that's not necessarily the case. And some of the jobs in 20 years don't even exist at the moment. We can't even define what they are. So that's so don't stress. Don't stress about 20 years' time. Just focus on how am I going to get up today take the responsibility I've been given seriously and look after the people around me. One of the, I, I mean, I did the speaking circuit for International Women's Day this year and my keynote was centred around one theme, which was, you know, you're responsible for the climate around you. Are you comfortable with the temperature that others feel? Mm. So that is something you absolutely can control, how people feel when they're around you. So what are you going to do with that? Mm. Yeah. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that metaphor. 
creating the uh, climate around you and what's the temperature look like today. That would be a good point of reflection on a daily basis, I reckon. What have been some of the resources that have helped you along the way? And obviously, you know, you've created Propel Her with Lindsay. And But what are those other resources that have helped you sort of get that perspective and mindset around being a good leader? Yeah, I mean, I should have, you know, a big list of podcasts. And I mean, of course, you know, Frontline to Boardroom with Martin Brooker is the number one. <laughs> but I don't really have a list of I because my list will look so different to everyone else. But what I would talk mm. about is structures that you put around yourself. So, mm. you know, working out what your priorities are and, and finding resources that help you work those out and then making sure that you absolutely stick to them so you're not selling selling anything short. And the second one would be making sure you have the right structure around your mentors, your coaches and your sponsors in the organisation. Mm. And, you know, most people will have a mentor, an informal mentor, or they'll kind of know what that is. Less people understand what coaching is. And actually in the military, especially the Navy and the Air Force, have dedicated coaching programs where you're entitled to a free leadership coach, someone like me who was trained. Even less people have a specific sponsor, especially women. And the power of sponsorship is so important. And, you know, a sponsor is someone that is is more senior to you in the organisation, perhaps an ex-mentor that's now promoted, you know, a little bit higher than they've got the capacity to mentor you intimately. But there's someone that knows what you're good at and what you want to achieve and they'll speak for you in the rooms that you are not in. Mm. And that has been absolutely essential in my career. And a lot of people are, are scared to seek a sponsor out, but it can absolutely change your career, especially when it happens organically. So definitely if you're listening and you can't think of, who would speak up for you when you're not in the room. Mm. Maybe have a think about someone that you could approach to start building that relationship with. Yeah. And it's one of the sponsorships, one of those things where we can be a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Particularly in Australian culture, you know, not wanting to sort of stick our head above the, uh, the parapet and, you know, the tall poppy syndrome. But it sounds like you've have a, you've kind of worked through that and, and have a perspective on that that's sort of constructive and useful. Can you share a little bit about why you're kind of okay with sponsorship? Yeah, I mean, if you do it in a gross way, no one's gonna <laughs> no one's gonna sponsor you. But yeah, I realized the power of it when I realized my responsibility to sponsor others. Right. You know, I mean, and I'm I'm you know quite junior organization, two and a half stripes, but you know, I can still speak for provide opportunities for women that might not be in the room at the time because I know that it's something that they are really valuing and. Mm. And then I realized, who's kind of doing that for me? And do I have relationships with people to know that they would do that for me? And the best way to set it up is just to be really good at your job, mm. to actually be noticed by those people. It's not about going to someone and saying, hey, can you you know, put me forward for this deployment or whatever? It's actually about being so good, they think of you automatically. Mm. And so for me, certainly my ex-mentors became sponsors because they knew what I strove for and they also had seen the quality of my work. And that was reflected in the fact that I didn't apply for any of my deployments. You know, I was I got a phone call and was asked to deploy because they knew that I would provide that level of, you know, outcome that they needed. Mm. So, yeah, let it happen organically but be deliberate. Yeah, I think it's such an important point, isn't it, to make it organic so that, you know, people get behind you and support you in that way because they actually see that you're the person that is worth sort of positioning forward or, promoting in some particular way they they kind of you know because of what you stand for maybe it's a you know maybe it's a particular cause or the fact that you have you know spoken up and and influenced the organization around a particular issue that 
that frankly just makes sense. And the fact that you are that kind of person, so it's actually all that confidence in that person to really to be able to, you know, step into this position that we're going to put them forward to. Yeah, that's right. And we talk about, you know, the pitch in consulting or, you know, I had a posting in Air Force Improvement, which was our internal consulting arm in Air Force under Strategic Reform Program. And it's all about getting that, understanding what your goal is, what you need to achieve it, you know, to close the gap between not achieving and achieving it. And then what are the resources around to help? And sometimes that's a person. And it's just about going to them and laying out that plan and making it as easy as possible for them to support you in it. Yeah. Yeah. Shams, it's been a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could talk on some of these issues for much longer and do look forward to the opportunity to, to catch up sometime soon when perhaps I'm in Canberra or you're up here in Brisbane. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you would like to answer? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think it's been such a great conversation. It's made me really reflect on my own experiences. I guess the one thing I would leave with your listeners is that, you know, those who are in the military and thinking about transitioning is big and scary, but everyone has to do it at some point. Mm. And the fact that they're listening to a podcast means they're doing a lot more than most people do to prepare. But, you know, absolutely find those people that you trust, you know, on the other side Mm. to guide you through because it is bloody hard and it can be really lonely, but you can absolutely do it and you absolutely will succeed. And you just have to listen to the other podcasts, uh, the other episodes in this podcast to hear incredible stories of people who have done it before you. So, yeah, I would encourage you to do that. Yeah. One of the things I have noticed a lot is that those who've served when they, after they've left, they continue to serve in some shape or form and, or they find social purpose and sort of put their energy and service into that. And I always used to coach people around the fact that, you know, while the military has a sort of a range of career options, you should always be thinking, well, what would the other option be? Because it helps you do that good assessment and judgment about what those options are. And I think with the, the way we're going in terms of a an integrated workforce that has careers to go in and out of the organisation. We definitely need to be thinking about all those options and let's uh, make transition out of the service a little bit less scary. Absolutely. Thank you. So, look, I want to finish up with the rapid-fire questions, if I could get you to fill in the blank. First question, leadership is blank? Harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Can be. What's your go-to book on leadership? Oh, I'm a chaplain's wife. Can I say Bible? Sure. There's some great leadership lessons in the Bible. Yeah. I got a pastor of my church just unpacked some of those just recently. I was fascinating. I wish I had known blank earlier in my career. How to dry my boots. It took me way too long to figure <laughs> out the way to dry them. Yeah. Yeah. And putting them in the tumble dryer is not an option. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I do know people who did that once. You get a call from a team member, a crisis just erupted in your company organisation. What are your first words to that person? I'm here with you. Excellent. And lastly, is there a go-to quote on leadership that's had influence on your personal leadership style? It can be from anybody. Oh, so many. What I'll do instead is say that every Monday on LinkedIn I post a Monday motivation and quite often they're inspirational leadership quotes. Fantastic. Shamsa, thank you so much for giving your time up today to be on the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. It's been fascinating. I wish you well in your consulting career and with Propel Her, and we look forward to seeing that success go forward. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is all mine, Martin. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. 
For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.